Guys, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. If you didn't draw a hunt this year, don't worry. There are still ways to get a tag and get out in the field. Not only are there leftover and OTC opportunities, but if you join GoHunt.com Insider with promo code JSCOTT by August 31st, 2021, you're also going to be entered to win $1,500 worth of Kuyu gear. You also are going to get 10 entries into GoHunt's Big Summer of Elk giveaway where you could win a 2022 New Mexico elk hunt and $15,000 in hunting gear. GoHunt Insider is the one platform for finding great hunts, researching new units, e-scouting, and planning your hunt. Now an added incredible value at no extra cost are desktop maps and maps available on iPhone and Android. Again, this is no extra cost. It's part of being an Insider member. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity. Sign up at GoHunt.com forward slash JScott and get a $50 GoHunt GearShop gift card just by using the JScott promo code. And also, don't forget, you're going to be entered into a drawing to win $1,500 worth of Kuyu gear. I also want to thank the gear shop at GoHunt.com and Cody Nelson, my friend of 20 plus years, the glassing guru. Don't forget, if you order on GoHunt.com or you call or text Cody at 602-399-3699, you're going to get a 10% discount by using the J. Scott promo code. You can also call the shop directly at 702-847-8747 or email at optics at GoHunt.com. I want to thank GoHunt for their sponsorship of this podcast. I also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting for sponsoring this podcast. That is the gear that I wear on all of my hunts. You can go to KUIU.com to order directly off the website. They're a direct-to-consumer company. They make the best hunting gear on the market today. Also, Phonescope.com. Use the JScott21 promo code. You're going to get a 10% off on all orders at Phonescope.com. Guys, thanks for listening, and let's get right to this episode. <laughs> no, like I said, I, I me being an idiot, I forgot my notebook, and then I was like, oh, yeah, because there's a whole bunch of questions that came in. Yeah, well, they're sitting on my stinking phone in my Instagram account, so how the heck am I going to sit here and do a live and then try to go back over to my messages? So literally, I'm, I'm sitting here making, I was like, oh, crap, scrabble notes, scrabble notes, scrabble notes. And then also I look up, it's five after, I'm like, gee, okay, forget it. That's enough. <laughs> I've been sitting here doing a, a solo comedy tour here for uh, five minutes. Um, uh, How's just, that going for you? Oh, not too great, actually. But uh, to answer a question, Zach, Zach wanted to know how big the Ot6 Ranch is. Uh, it's 50,000 acres deeded. Um, here's a question. If southern Colorado stays pretty green, what elevations uh, that you'll think the elk will push to in early season, super high or 10-ish? Chris, we might as well start right with this question from Leo Jones. Um, if it stays green, like, I mean, it's raining right now outside, and you're, um, I should say, you are in Colorado yourself doing some, some uh, row ecological resources work, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can fill us out on that. But what do you think if it stays green like it is, what, where are the elk going to be? What elevation? I think they're going to, I, I'm not even going to be concerned about, well, Okay, so there's a lot of different habitats in Colorado, like you know. And so there's some areas that have high alpine stuff. And then there's some areas that literally the highest part of the mountain is 9,000 feet. Um, 
I think in those areas where elk have access to alpine, I think you will see some of those animals going there and staying there simply because it's cooler. Uh, I mean, they're laying on fat. They're getting their winter coat starting to come in. So I think they're going to a lot of times they're going to try to stay with that cooler temperatures, but also bugs. You can get up there and get away from the insects. And if there's ample food and water up there, they'll stay. But quite honestly, I think the, the biggest factor to where the elk are going to go is at this point, with all the water that most areas are seeing from the bottom of the mountain to the top, they've got food and water everywhere. So they're going to go where they have the best sanctuary, best safety. So just because you're seeing elk in high country basins right now, if you've got 20 mule deer hunters that pile into that that thing, well, are the elk going to stay right there? No, they're not. You know, they could go up and over the ridge because there's plenty of food and water up high, or they could just tip right down the mountain and drop down. So, I, you know, this, and if you don't mind, I had a question come in, um, do, 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 oh, with Sterling Debner in a similar question, he was with this, with this Colorado moisture, you know, is it going to affect the rut, number one, and or how will it affect the rut? And he was asking about, okay, so what about wallows? Do you do you even hunt wallows? And I see your face and I see you shaking your head. You know as darn well as I do. Okay, let's if we're just talking about wallows, the hotter, the drier it is, those wallows become just magnets because it's the only place they're getting water and they can cool off and get away from bugs. But when you literally have rainstorm after rainstorm every afternoon and it's cold and wet, and there's water everywhere, man, they don't have to hit a particular wallow in it, you know, day in and day out. They'll still probably use them a little bit just to get themselves stinky, but that's really about it, unless you've got those, you know, Jay, on yours, you've got both uh, stock tanks, and then you've got the the stock pond type of deal, and I've always advocated, you know, and people in Arizona know this all the time as well, if, if an elk has a chance to, to wallow around in a dirt tank, in a, in a big pond, they that's will do yeah that's what they want it's not because of just well there's water there and it's not just because well there's mud there and i can i can get walled up they can actually find water and they can find mud other places but when we're Social. talking about there you go bingo you nailed it so when we're talking about the rut we're talking about bulls with cows it becomes a social place and so that is kind of what i would i if you find a wallow that's tucked right smack dab, like way back up into a bedding area. Okay, that'd be a great midday set if you can, if the if the uh, wind is going to allow it. But if you felt that you just wanted to try to hunt water, maybe you're not a good caller. Maybe you don't have as much mobility. Quite honestly, at this point, maybe the little tiny wallows aren't where you go. Maybe you, you look for those larger, in it, whether it's a beaver pond, whether it's just a big wet area, or whatever, where the elk can have a social. Um, interaction and as far as the rut goes you know that you know jay you know on the website my the elk uh, module on the website i've got an eight-part series on just what causes what what affects the elk rut and the relevant part of this one when we're talking about moisture and food availability the only thing that that's going to do is is allow those cows to cycle in on their normal time frame you know, so if, if they if they normally on on average cycle in, say, September 19th, having high body fat right now is going to allow them to cycle normally. 
But all the other things I talk about, you know, whether she has a calf at her side, whether she's bonded with cows, whether she's in the presence of a mature bull, if that mature bull has been there for an ex, you know, extended period of time, all those other factors can affect when that cow is going to cycle. But when we're talking about moisture this year, it's just going to allow them to cycle on their normal routine. Chris, a question kind of parlaying this into some other questions we have and going back to something that we talked about. Um, you used to talk about hunting your high country camp in Colorado, OTC, and you always talk about there's a time that you really like to hunt, which was the, the, the latter part of August. Now with the season um, starting, I believe, September 2nd, uh, you, you don't necessarily get that time frame. My question would be, and it kind of goes back to this other guy's question is, what specifically in the high country made them come from above timberline and get out of timberline? I always say like it's the first frost, something about it, they just move out of there. But what in your mind, you had a you when you could hunt in August, you had about a five to seven day window when you had all your elk up high yep. and then the bulls they left. Talk about that. I think it's multifaceted. I think it depends on exactly what basin we're talking about. But, you know, you hear somebody, you know, people talk, and I've talked about it for years, about that pre-rut move. Um, you, so in the summer, you're going to have those elk on the high country. And, and, again, folks that are listening to this that don't hunt in alpine areas, there's going to be similarities to the behavior, but it may be less, di- it may be less dictated by elevation. Okay, so it's going to be habitat. So, you know, it, it, down in southern Colorado in some places, well, heck, Jay, even on maybe on the Ot Six Ranch in places, it, do they have access to above timberline stuff? Yes. But do they have a lot of low-lying stuff as well? Yes. They move across your landscape and they will separate. So the bulls are summering in one area. The cows and calves are going to be in, in another area. As that summer progresses and the, and the bulls go hard-horned, they're going to, you know, they're. Uh, let's just talk about the high country. They're going to be in the high country. They're going to be separated a little bit. So the cows and calves are going to be in one area. The bulls are going to be somewhere nearby, off adjacent basins or whatever. As they go hard horn and they start to, the bulls start to make their way to those cow-calf groups, there's going to be a lot of interspecific competition. They're going to try to be getting their pecking order figured out. They're going to be going over there. They're going to be displaying. They're going to be walking in and around the cow-calf groups. They're going to be displaying for those females. They're going to be letting them know, you know, they're, Body size matters, and, and their confirmation and their confidence and in uh, their entire persona matters on cows choosing those bulls. And so they get into that high country, and they start to mingle with those cows. However, cows will start to bust themselves out into little groups as well. And so you start to see where those bulls, there's a little bit of competition. They're vying for cows. Those cows want to start to split up. And quite honestly, sometimes... They've just learned that as soon as August comes, so do the people. So, therefore, I need to move down into the timber where it's safe. Other times, they learn there's a bunch of cows here. I have my group of cows. The longer I stay out exposed, the more likelihood another bull is going to come in and try to challenge me and try to, try to you know, push me out and, and take my – I'm just going to take my cows and we're going to go down into the timber where I can disappear with my ladies. Now, and I said that specifically because there's a lot of people that that's what they believe. 
The bull comes in, the bull takes the cows, the bull pushes them down the mountain to protect them. Yes, Jay. I'm, I, see, I love your face. You're like me. You, you, there was a meme the other day that says, I don't need a mood ring because I have a face. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, no. The cows are the ones that choose the bull. And the cow, think about your daily lives. If you're married, who's running the, the daily activity <laughs> schedule for, for your family? It ain't you. Let's just put it that way. You have, you have an input. You can suggest. And if your suggestion's good, she'll follow. But if it's not, she just overrides you and you're like, well, that was that was nice, honey, but we're going to do this. Okay. Same thing with elk. The, the cows choose the bull that they want to bond with. The cows are the ones oftentimes that are going to be like from a safety standpoint, from a, from a cows don't like to be harassed. And so if they have a very large, mature bull that absolutely can defend that group and keep all the riffraff away. Okay, well, then fine. Maybe we defer to him because he can keep us safe. But in many of these over-the-counter areas, we don't have that age class. We have a two-and-a-half-year-old or three-and-a-half-year-old bull that might be with those cows. He does not. Not only does he not have the ability to, quote-unquote, adequately defend, really, most of the time he's acting like a stupid teenager, and he's pushing the cows around constantly anyway. So the cows will take them out of those vulnerable situations and tuck themselves down into some of these gnarly little pockets simply because the cows don't want to deal with the crap. They've already had to settle for a, a younger age class bull that they probably don't care for anyway, but that's the best that they've got around them. So, fine. Come on. We're going down here. We're going to go back down the mountain. We're going to find a little place to tuck ourselves into. Stay away from all the conflict. Stay away from all the riffraff until I get bred. I don't care about anybody else. I want to get bred. And then once I get bred, yeah, you guys can do what you want. So there was a couple different reasons in my high country camp. I think it was they learned behavior from uh, – from previous people pressure, but more importantly, that's I, every year I watched it happen. They were up in that out al, that Alpine basin. And you know, those years where the season started August 25th, you'd have multiple bulls, multiple cow calf groups, and you could get in there and the, the bulls weren't, you know, paired up. I mean, you could, you could actually do something, but as soon as it was like August 27th to 29th, they're they're making the move, and by September first, they there you you would be hard pressed to find a, uh, an elk in that basin. Specific question: Did you notice on dry years when it when it when it was dry and the vegetation above timberline was not as good compared to when it's wet and vegetation above timberline is very good? Did you see a correlation of maybe they stayed later, maybe they left earlier? Can you talk a little bit about? Like on this year, yeah. in most of Colorado, is very wet. In Montana, it's very dry. Can you talk about the correlation of wet and dry, and did they stay later or did they leave earlier? Okay, so I did a video. It's on it's on the elk module, and I talk about basically looking at a mountain like a sponge. If you if you took a big giant triangular sponge, if you're constantly sprinkling water onto the top of the sponge. That sponge is going to get saturated from the tippy-tippy top all the way down to the bottom. But if you just turn off that faucet, what's going to happen with that water? It's slowly going to just settle, and it's going to fall down that, you know, off the peak. And so that peak of the sponge is going to start to dry out, especially with the wind blowing on it and everything else. It's going to dry out before the bottom does. And you can see that a lot of times with in dry years with the alpine where you look up there and all of a sudden – like man, it's the end of August, but I'm seeing yellows and golds and and oranges and, and I'm, it's it like burns what? Out. yeah, 
Yeah, it's the forage quality starts to drastically decrease. Well, if they have the option of choosing better forage in some other place, a lot of times they will. And so oftentimes I've seen they actually will come down out of that uh, high country into some of those lower areas that have better uh, moisture and better feed quality. Now, with that being said, if they get bumped and disturbed excessively down lower, it's not uncommon for them to say, screw it. I'm, for a safety standpoint, I'm going back up to where I have a little bit, you know, I, I've got more options for safety and I'll just deal with a little bit uh, lesser quality food. But yeah, no, if, if it's a dry year, I, I will always hunt where the water is and where the better forage is. And then I will branch out from there and try to find them. I'm going to go to where I think they should be. And then I will branch out to try to see if I can track them down. Got a question here. What should an Eastern hunter do if their area was burnt? Move or will elk be back in such a large burn? And he's talking about the Pine Gulch area. So his area was burned. He wants to know if he moves or will the elk be back? Does uh, I, and this is a question that I don't have the answer to. How bad did that fire burn? Was it a right? Was, so let's go through the scenarios and talk about whether it just moonscaped burned it or if it yeah. mosaic burned and left some timber. I would say that you know, depending on when the burn was, and I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with the pine gulch burn, um, but I would say usually about if, if we had a a burn last summer, I would say it's good to move in there this summer. I've seen burns where you have it and a month later elk and stuff really start moving back in. But usually my idea is that first year after the burn when you start getting that fresh green growth, that's when the elk will really flock in there. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, so there's actually been some research on this as well. And quite honestly, Jay, um, I'm going to pitch this one to you. You have a really good network of outfitters, uh, friends that are down in Arizona that ha they hunt a broad area. There was some research done in Starkey research area up in Washington, and they looked at the the timing of not. Well, I mean, how would I put it? They would have a burn. They would do a prescribed burn on the, the research area. And then they looked over the course of years when elk came back and, more importantly, what elk came back. Were the Did the cows come in first? Did the bulls come in first? Was it uh, September, you know, uh, fall feeding time when the elk came in? Or were they usually or were they using that burn actually better in the spring and the summer? What I would pitch to you, Jay, is maybe give – this would be – I'm, I'm genuinely – from a research standpoint, genuinely interested, you ought to pull together some of your outfitters that have hunted in some of the Arizona areas that have burned and then ask them, oh, because they've been there for years, what did they see? What was the change? Number one, how soon after the burn did they come? A, how intense was the burn? Okay, because you're absolutely right. If we look at what goes on in the Kaibab uh, down in Unit 9 and, and some of those other areas, and, and Coconino, all the, Arizona has an awesome forest management practice down there. They do a lot of... of uh, comparatively. Co co oh, yeah, comparatively. They do a lot of prescribed burns. So most of the burns that they're dealing with down there are light to moderate severity. 
and most of the time they're going to be light severity. So you know as well as I do that elk, the elk come right back in. You you yeah. put some moisture on it, the elk come right back and in. And that's that's the key I think with anything is put moisture on it and they can yes. come back very very quickly. It, especially in a light to moderate burn intensity area. Now when we start going in that really high intensity burn where it just it sterilizes the soil and it turns into a moonscape, that's going to take years to jump back. Now number 1 a lot of brushy species will oftentimes come in first, like your, your gooseberry and choke cherries and that, that type of stuff, uh, serviceberry, mountain mahogany. Some of those, those brushy species will often, oftentimes come in first. The Forest Service will also, also oftentimes come over with aerial uh, seeding, and they'll throw in species of grass and forbs and such that oftentimes have a good root mass. Now, that doesn't mean that they're the highest quality elk forage on the mountain but they're there to stabilize the soil and stabilize the ash layer now what that means to me is oftentimes when you have those more intensity burns that get moisture on it that bumps back into more shrubby component oftentimes they can be really good winter areas because that's the type of forage that elk are going to be looking for later on in the winter Whereas in those light to moderate burn areas where you get some water on it and those cool season grasses and forbs just it just erupt and jump back and maybe aspen shoots start coming back, well, that's just great forage anytime. And so, yes, when you're talking about the rut, if you've got elk in and around those areas, absolutely you could have good uh, activity during the fall. But what you said in the beginning, Jay, I think is important, mosaic. If you have, you know, like I said, so, yeah, uh, oh, sorry. You're you're absolutely right. Starkey's in Oregon. I said Washington, didn't I? Sorry, I was thinking about Washington on something else. Sorry. Yeah, you're right. Oregon. Thanks for keeping um, us honest, guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's the beautiful thing about <laughs> these things because there's interaction. So yes. So Citadel Rick, you said it's the largest in Colorado history. Exactly. Okay, I do remember that. The question is: Is are we talking about this person's hunt area was right smack dab in the middle of the massive, you know, high intensity? monotypic you know burn well if that's the case go find another spot however right. the, the, the spring i think he's talking about the spring gulch he said pine gulch but the one that down pretty close to the ot six ranch i mean we can see places it's burned and it's i mean it it moonscaped it i mean yeah. burned it to pieces yeah, if that's the case, then uh, I'm going to either relocate to another area or what at the very minimum, I'm going to relocate to the edges of it. And quite honestly, there's there are good resources within the Forest Service uh, that you can get a hold of the guys, especially just pick up the, the regional Forest Service office that handles that area and say, hey, do you guys have an updated what your fire intensity map was for that burn and, and what the re- reclamation uh management plan has been so far and talk to them and find out where those light intensity and moderate intensity burn areas were where was the mosaic pattern on that fire if there was one you know they'll be able to steer you in a good direction but i'm going to be looking for those areas that that burned at a light maybe moderate intensity that have that mosaic that patchwork of habitat because if you have that and you have the moisture that we have this year Absolutely. I have a feeling that you're going to have some really good potential to have elk activity in there. Now, with that said, there's a you're asking you're asking the question on a public forum about hunting a burn. You want to know how many other hunters focus on and gravitate towards hunting a burn area? A lot. So just because it might be really good potential elk hunting, do not 
for a second think you're going to go in there and not run into a bunch of hunters because it, it is a magnet for elk and deer just as it is a magnet for other hunters. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Steven Vasquez, uh, 03, uh, any point in scouting for an elk hunt now if you've already hired a great guide? What is that? So my answer, (laughs) it sounds like he's hired a guide and he wants to know if he should go do his own scouting. Um, As a guide myself, um, I think it's fine if the client wants to go scout and, you know, go look around and they may find, you know, a bunch of elk or find a specific bull. But one of the challenges, as personally speaking, from from my perspective, being a guide is when you have a hunter that's out scouting in the summer and our hunt is in the rut, and then they come and say they found a 400-inch bull, and they show me the video, and I'm like, yeah, that's a great bull, Um, but do you realize that that bull's probably going to be in a different unit in September? So where I'm going with that is, yes, it's fine to do your own scouting, and maybe you would do some good. Maybe you would find a bull that the guide then could then both together tag team and try and stay on that bull, but you also have to understand that you've hired a guide for a reason. And the reason is you've hired him to help you get on elk and, and get the job done. If you are the type of client that is going to show up and say, well, what are you seeing? I, you know, I saw these bulls, you know, two weeks ago and we need to be over here. Well, now you're dictating where the guide is going to hunt. A lot of times, and Chris, you can attest to this uh, guiding in Unit 9 and guiding in Arizona is, Guides have areas that they really like to hunt. They like, they know the country. They know the flow of the bulls. They know how the cows move. They know how the pressure of other people. And so when you get a situation where a hunter is starting to kind of, you know, maybe second guess the guide, that's not a good situation. So I would give you the advice, you know, if you hired a guide, know that you should have done your research and picked a great guide. And so any scouting that you would do would maybe just be subsequent scouting and trying to enjoy your hunt and then put it on the guide and say, here's a bull I found. I can stay on him and you continue to scout your country. Um, Chris, your thoughts? No, you're, yeah, all of that is, is good. And, and I like what you said is, you hired a guide for their expertise and that individual, like you said, it now, if that, if that, okay, there are some outfitters that you will book a hunt through an outfitter. And then that outfitter goes and finds a warm body just to go hike around the mountainside with you. So I don't know if that's the case with your outfitter, but even if that's the case, Most of the time, the outfitters have history in these areas. And even if they just hire a warm body that's never been there, the outfitter is going to meet you, sit down with them prior and say, okay, you guys need to go over this drainage on this bench because this is a little bench over here. This is there's there's knowledge there that has played out in their favor year after year after year. And so lean on that and trust it because you go in with your perceived your your preconceived um, ideas on what you see and what, like you said, Jay, you nailed it. What you see now is not necessarily what's going to happen in September. And just because, oh, there, that saddle over there looks awesome. Well, yeah, it it does. It It's beautiful. It looks great. And yes, do elk cross that saddle? Yes, they do. But 
that's in August because they're over here now. Yeah, but that saddle, we need to go over there. I mean, Jay, like we, we joked about it before. I had that one client that uh, w- his buddy was pissed off at me in Unit 9, Arizona, was just torqued, thought I didn't know. I didn't know my rear end from my, my elbow because, quote, well, I hadn't gone out in Unit 9 and located all those little hidden springs in, the, in those little natural springs where, where the water, you know, where the elk would be. I'm like, there, there are no, there are no springs. You know, I mean, just like, just because you, you go into an idea, you heard something online of this is what I need to see, doesn't necessarily mean that area has that component and that you can exploit that component at the time while you're in there. So if you want to scout, and then the other thing, too, that, that makes me nervous, if this is public ground and if it's a remote area, man, just let it be. Don't disturb it. it you already, you've, you're paying somebody their expertise. They already know it. So don't you go in and put your scent in there and blow, bump elk and move this, that, and that. Don't just, how about this? You, you, you hired the guy or gal, whatever. If you want to scout and get an idea of the lay of the land, then, okay, hike up the trails that you're going to use. Maybe hike up on a, a high point. Just kind of get a lay of the land and just see how you handle that elevation and how you handle that terrain, how you handle the slopes and everything. Can you move? Can you? Is, is it? Is it? Is it going to be doable for you? And then I would just get the heck out, you know, because, yeah, like you said, what you see now is not necessarily what's going to be seen uh, later in September. And Jay, if you don't mind, I saw a, a, a comment pop up there and it's similar to one of my other ones is, you know, is there any point to scouting now? You know, really does it matter to scout now? What do you, what is your thought on scouting now? Well, before I get into scouting now, I do have a, a saying it's get in, hang on, shut up and let's go. <laughs> get, get in, sit out, shut up, and hang on, and let's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's one guide in this camp, and that's me. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. That's right. And I don't mean that as a jerk, but you've hired me, and now we're going to do it my way, and we're going to live yeah. and die by the sword. We're going to do it my way. We're going to make some mistakes, but probably at the end of the hunt, it's going to work out good if if we just keep going and do it the way yeah. I like. And trust, trust your outfitter. Yep. Right. So whoever you hired, you obviously did a bunch of research. Now just get in, sit down, hang on, shut up. <laughs> um, but scouting you now, would you, what, what, oh, I scouting mean, now. So, I mean, in Arizona, speaking specifically about Arizona, what I find, and then I'll talk about the Odd Six Ranch. When you're talking summertime, most of the bulls move anywhere from 15 to 30 miles. There are some bulls that will stay within a mile of where they are all summer, but I think it's a very small percentage. In Arizona specifically, I would say the majority of the bulls would move at least 10 miles to a, to a totally different area than they spend in the summer and rut in a completely different pocket. I know there was a couple bulls, big giant bulls that were up on the park in unit nine. We all know these same, you know, legendary bulls and they're getting shot at 35 miles away in the lower part of seven West. And 
for 20 years, I guided public land in Arizona, and I saw that over and over and over and over. So what I normally would say is your scouting gets real important. If, if It's one thing to learn the unit, but when you start scouting and looking at bulls that you're trying to shoot when the season starts, September 1st was about that time frame from right then till the season started when it was the most important time to be in the unit. The whole time knowing that you could find a bull in that first week of September and he's still in his summer ground and he still could make a big move. So that was always a challenge for me is getting, I always got there, started scouting on September 1st and I found a few good bulls and some of them stayed. Some of them moved a little ways because they were already in their movement. And then some of them just were gone. And I'd find them, you know, in the completely different part of the unit. Or a buddy would be in another unit, send me a text of, hey, check out this great bull. And I'm like, that's the one I saw two days ago. So scouting in the summer is phenomenal. It gets people fired up and excited about, you know, seeing the bulls and seeing the velvet and seeing, you know, how big a bulls they are taking kind of inventory of antler growth and what have you. But about September 1st is when you really start pinpointing, you know, elk that you're probably going to be hunting. Same goes with the Ot6 Ranch. I mean, we run trail cameras all summer and those bulls, they move, they show up, they, you know, they, they're, they're not just, some of them are, some of them basically stay in the same 500 yard or thousand yard circle their whole life. But, most of them come from a long ways away. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. In the high country, if you're talking about just some of the high country units, same thing. I mean, it, they may just be going basin to basin, but, you know, you're like, oh, well, that, that other basin's only a, a mile or two from here. Okay, At, on, on, a, on a map it is, but when you're talking about how much they're, I mean, they're, you know, the terrain features and, and the ground they're covering is incredible. And the, the thing that I wanted to clarify, because I know a lot of people say this to me and, and have asked, they're like, well, yeah, I mean, of course they're going to move if they need to go find cows. No. They're in Grand Canyon National Park walking through the entire Unit 9, which is a big unit, to go to, whoops, to go to Unit 7 West. They are walking through thousands of cows it's it's not about that they're trying to find a cow a lot of times they just know where they can be safe and they've survived and they've done well from a reproductive standpoint and so they go back to those areas where they feel comfortable and they will find cows there so and they're it's gonna a territorial make, thing too i yes. mean ice bulls on the same rubbing on the same trees that they rubbed the year before it's a territorial yeah. thing i'm convinced of it um let's jump here to a question quest Quest AZ, when bulls are bugling, how tight do you get in before you attempt to call? So I try and get in as close as I possibly can. And if I can get in and put my binoculars on them at, you know, 70, 80 yards before I call, that's what I'm going to try and do. My success of calling a bull into what I would call bow range goes way up when I can get into that under a hundred yards before I even make a sound. So if 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 I had my preference, I would not even make a sound until I got eighty or ninety yards. And if I could get sixty, I would get sixty. 
I can't tell you how many times I've been able, they've been bugling, I've been able to weasel my way in, weasel my way in, and I don't make a sound until they're 50 yards and they come right over. Well, you only have to close 20 or 30 yards and they're at 20 or 30 yards. So fight the urge to call your way into bulls. Um, I was talking with Steve Chapel about it on a podcast a couple episodes ago. Curious your thoughts uh, on, on that as well, Chris. Yeah, same thing. I mean, obviously, the habitat that you're in is going to make a big difference. You know as darn well as I do, in Unit 9, in the big timber, in the big pines, good luck getting in within 200 and some odd yards of them sometimes because it's just wide open. But will I get in there and set up and give it a go? Heck, yeah, I'll give it a go. But if I can be down, if you're talking about down in the PJ country or if I'm down in southern Colorado in that oak brush country and there's a bull talking, Oh, heck yes. I'm going to try to get myself in there as close as possible. Now, granted, I will I will caveat this with it also depends on how you're calling. There's so many people that want to jump to an aggressive style calling strategy that, yes, if you if if you are going to employ an aggressive calling strategy, especially if you're going to be using bull vocalizations and bugles. You start bugling and calling and getting aggressive at several hundred yards, and then you're working your way in. I can, I will bet strong money. You're just going to push them. You're just going to be pushing them and following them across the landscape. However, if you get in close, like right in their back pocket, and then you jump into whatever strategy you want, now you might be able to elicit that instinctual response where they have to react and have to come engage you before they get their their cows out of there. However, Jay's talked about has his calling style, and you darn well anybody at this point knows my calling strategy and my my philosophy. If I'm acting as though I'm a cow or cow with calves, and there is no bull with me, I'm not giving any bull vocalizations, and I'm using the base core fundamental vocalizations that I'll use, those lost muse and assembly muse. I can get away with calling on my way to them to keep them talking and keep them pinpointing because it actually makes sense that I would be seeking them because that they, they're responding to me. And it makes sense that they would be moving that way. And it helps me, when we're talking thick cover, it helps me hone in on where I need to be and how I can work that win to my advantage. So, yeah, I, I will always default to getting as close to that animal. If I can pinpoint him and I can, I know exactly where he is, I'm going to default by trying to get as absolutely physically close to possible as I can before calling. But if it's thick and he's only talking sparingly and I don't have a real good fix on him, how you call can actually give you some flexibility on touching base with him and moving in on that, that animal. So, Next question here. How would you go about doing a three to four man group with one caller? Personally, I would have two shooters out in front, have the other guy back with me and he's out of the game. Have your two shooters out in front, have communication ahead of time as to maybe who's shooting first or who has preference. But if this guy has a better shot, have communication ahead of time. Uh, and then always remember that that bull is going to try and come in and get your win. So the, as the caller, you want to try and draw that bull 
and you want to be calling upwind so that that bull, when he swings, he doesn't swing too far around and doesn't give either of the two shooters a shot. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yep. Okay. How do you see the rut being in Arizona this year with all the moisture they've gotten, but coming off such a bad drought? Chris, let you hit that first. Um, I, and you and I've talked about this before, Jay, a lot of times. So you, you got two things. Well, I guess he's asking about the rut. It, it's all going to be on forage quality. What, what, what is the, what does the food look like? It, I, you know, down in Arizona. Okay. Here's a question to you, pitching it to you, Jay. When did the rains actually start hitting? It's been in the past few weeks, hadn't it? Or did it start back in early July? So it depends on the Eastern part of the state. It started early. It started at the end of June. Okay. And, and the Eastern part of the state is just blown up, had incredible rains that my buddies tell me the feed is waist high. It's as good as it can there get. There you nine, go. nine and 10, 10 is better than nine, but nines really come on. But nine, even, you know, into around July 1st was not that great. So body condition depending on the unit that you were in 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 nine it was not good it's rebounded and they've come on pretty good uh 10 is better eastern part of the state central around flag is 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 great um but nine is very marginal um but it it's greened up but i tend to think the antlers are going to be affected because they were in very poor condition prior to the rains in the well, eastern part of the state, I think they'll be pretty darn good. Uh, in Unit 10, I think they'll be pretty darn good as far as antlers. Um, not fantastic, but uh, pretty good. From what you – I was – you nailed it as far as your what you said about the body condition. That's, that's kind of what I was looking at is – so if you're in those areas that have a little bit higher elevation, maybe some aspen stands and that type of stuff – you, you can have a component of your vegetation, your grass vegetation and your forbs that are considered more cool season forages. They respond to cooler temperatures, but they respond to moisture very well. And so if all of a sudden you pour the moisture on, they start growing. doesn't matter. They, they'll start growing. If they start growing, the nutritional quality of that range condition goes up. The body condition of the cows is probably going to be good. However, like you said, Jay, when unit nine, now we can get up into the pine area up there, but even in the pine area, a lot of the vegetation understory is blue grandma, grandma grass. That is a warm season grass that grows in the summer. If it has, it, it just grows in the summer period. It, it, and so if the moisture came on while that grass was actively trying to grow and put a seed head up, then it will green up and it'll grow. But if that moisture, because it's, it's going to do something. Sometimes it grows 18 inches tall. Sometimes it only grows 8 inches tall. And sometimes it grows 2 inches tall and throws a seed head because there's just no moisture. But as soon as that grass throws a seed head, it's done growing, period. It's, at this point, it's just putting resources into the root system down below. So in those areas where the rain, if you're in an area that has good, cool season grasses and the rain came out, the forage has gone way up. In those areas where you have warm season grasses predominantly, Yes, it might green up a little bit, but I have a feeling you're going to be hard-pressed. to see. It, It's probably going to be slower to increase that body condition of those cows, and that's that's the driver right there. The body condition of the cows dictates when they cycle, largely, other than those other factors I talked about a little while ago. So if the forage is turning green and the cows are getting good food and they can make up that, that previous early season deficit, they'll be good to go. 
Yeah, and I've heard uh, New Mexico's in most places is phenomenal. Most of Colorado's phenomenal. Arizona, I think Nevada's pretty darn good. Uh, reports in Montana are a little sketchy. They're they're having pretty dry up there. Parts of northern Idaho, I think, are pretty dry as well. Uh, got a question here: Is it uh, it's the rut or is the rut triggered by light? Talk a little bit about that photosynthesis uh, whole that whole thing. Yeah. So again, I'm I'm not going to try to be a jerk, but I'm going to re- I'm going to ref- refer people back over to the, the website. There's an eight part series on that. So yes, the photo period is the driver of hormones. Okay. That is what's going to drive the hormones of those animals. Now, whether or not those hormones flip the switch and the and the cow goes into estrus is based on and and when if and when she goes into estrus is based on a whole bunch of things. Yes, photo period is the driver of the hormones and no Moon phase does not statistically have anything to do with it, okay? So just skip the moon phase as far as a rut discussion goes. After the photo period triggers the hormones to flow the, to the level that they need, after that, it's all about body condition, calf, uh, presence or absence of calf, bonding with cows, mature bull around them, length of time that the bull's been around them, etc., um, Monty, Monty's reporting in from Unit 9 saying Unit 9 is extremely green was in the triangle last night uh, even the well camp looks like a green carpet uh, of, all, of, of all the years I might not be down maybe I, have, maybe I, maybe I might need to try, change my <laughs> <laughs> I think the rut you know, I think the rut's going to be fantastic in Arizona. I think the antler growth in other than the eastern part of the state, I think is just going to be average. Um, we got a question here. Are calf sounds the way to go, or is there scenarios that mature cow sounds are necessary? That's that's a big one. Yeah, and I know. So, in other words, what he listened to was another podcast that had Joel Turner on it that now is all of a sudden talking about calf sounds. and So, yeah, I mean, Again, if you if you are a subscriber to Row Hunting Resources Elk module, you've seen where I've for years I've talked about the difference between mature cow sounds and, and calf vocalizations and, and why calf vocalizations can be so good. I did I and now I've done I don't know how many seminars for ISE and other places and the entire name of the seminar has been, you know, if the bull are the elk not talking, well then cry like a baby. And it, and it talks about using calf vocalizations uh, to get silent elk to either A, respond, or, or either vocally respond, and or to move your way. And, and the, the big part about that is, is I, I understand where the discussion went. I, I, there's, there's just, that's a problem. There's, there's caveats to this, and this is where just me saying, do this provides no context and no basis for you to evaluate the effectiveness of that tool, that strategy. On it's situational. The You're saying it's situational. Totally. Correct. Correct. And so that's, again, my philosophy is teaching you the why. Why are elk vocalizing the way they are? What are they saying? 
What do they expect is a response? Now, when people talk about calf sounds, you'll hear people say, well, calf sounds, those, those high-pitched sounds. Okay, and if we're talking about you and I dealing with an infant, a baby, and the baby's just babbling, okay, well, that's baby talk. Okay, I understand that. But if a toddler or a kindergartner, we don't assume that a kindergartner is going to be babbling with baby talk. No, they actually have words and they know how to communicate. Is their voice a little higher pitched than, than mine or yours? Of course they are. So they're high pitched. High pitched, it, it indicates that, yes, it may be an age, uh, earlier age class animal. But what vocalization are you using? Most of the time, people are talking about a lost mew. Most calves, the vast majority of their vocabulary is lost mews because they're just trying to stay in contact with somebody else. After that, it's all up. Yes, can you get a response with that? Yes. If you use that cat vocalization correctly, can you get elk to move your way? Yes, you can. But just because you're using cat vocalizations, is it the end-all, be-all? Because quite honestly, my when I talk about a targeted calling strategy, yes, I'm using lost muse, and oftentimes I'm using lost calf muse to get somebody to cut loose and vocalize. But what do I do? I immediately get myself set up. I get in close. And then most of the time, I am going to transition over to adult assembly muse. I'm going to be sounding like a mature cow. I'm going to dictate what the cat, what what the calf that they hear is doing, and I'm also going to start communicating to the cow, the, the either the cows or the bull that I'm talking to, and I'm going to try to start dictating their activity, what they're doing. I want you to do this. I want you to come to me. So I understand where, and again, this is. The, the, the benefit of these type of discussions is everybody gets to listen to it and everybody gets to learn from it. Or, no, I take that back. Everybody gets to, to listen to it. And then some people hear something that they like and they're like, oh, yeah, that's a great. And then they grab it and go and they, they, they make it their own. But if you don't understand the why behind it, you can set yourself up let's just say rather than failure you can just set yourself up just for just sheer disappointment because you can go out there and just start using calf vocalizations and not get the results that you're hoping for and then you think well i'm just use i'm 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 not doing the calf vocalizations right no you 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 did them exactly right but they weren't what was needed in that situation the the situation wasn't right for it yeah, uh, no, I, trust me, I, I do. I use calf vocalizations because they are non-threatening to cows. Bulls do respond to them. Bulls will come into them. I've got an entire video on the website that shows me calling in a bull elk with calf vocalizations. But the other thing, too, that a lot of guys are not talking about is they're not talking about using calf vocalizations, how calves actually vocalize. All they're talking about is using a high-pitched cow sound. Jeez, O.P., Steve Chapel. How many times have we watched Steve Chapel, you know, call in just giant freaking elk? He he's using cow sounds. He is the he is a uh, he, he's a maestro when it comes to executing a cow cow call. Does he care about whether he's using calf vocalizations or mature cow vocalizations? No, he just executes the most sexiest cow vocalization you've ever heard and just 
no, it, uh, I don't know. I could I could babble on because I, I listened to that same. I I did. I listened to that podcast. I heard the the discussion, and I was like, well, they got a part of it, but the rest of it is going to leave people with questions, and that's just unfortunately unless they come over and watch my stuff. <laughs> Uh, got a, one here. Similar to a second rut with whitetails, do bulls move around looking for cows still in heat later in the month? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. And that's, I mean, it happens and that's why you can get bulls bugling and chasing cows all the way into the 15th of October and even later in some places oh, where you get, you know, second and third cycles and, and, um, so, yeah, they just move around like a horny billy goat looking for whatever they can get because they only have about 30 days to get her done. Yeah, and so two two things. One, I, Weedy in the Wild just added another comment that I want to jump on that with with that cat vocalization. But, yes, what you're talking about is exactly right. So two things. One, uh, sometimes, they, sometimes the cow doesn't uh, either cycle on time if the forage quality is, is poor and she comes in late and so it can drag out that rut. And so you can have multiple uh, bugling spikes in there and activity. Um, and then quite honestly, if the, if the uh, forage quality has been awesome for a while, you can have female elk calves being born early or at a high body weight. And they can actually cycle if they have enough body condition, they can actually cycle that first year, but oftentimes they'll cycle, you know, in October. And so, yes, that's why some of those October, early October hunts can just be phenomenal. Um, either the animals are getting, are, are bugling because there is estrus smells, pheromones in the, in the woods, or just like turkeys, they're got gobbling. They're bugling because all of a sudden all that activity left and now they're horny and they're like, where's, please, dear Lord, let there be someone else. And so they're out there across the landscape just trying to find somebody that's still cycling in an asterisk. But one, the, one thing I want to point out here real fast, Chris, is just to make sure um, there's no misunderstanding. Both you and I think Joel Turner is phenomenal caller. Yes. We, yeah. He's a great person. We love Joel Turner. Yeah. Um, so nothing either one of us, I don't think, has said it. You know, nothing personally. I don't even know what other podcast, but it doesn't really matter. Um, the, the key is we can have discussions like this and have a little bit, you know, saying we need more context to just tell people to race yeah. out and start making calf sounds and then nothing to do with what we think of Joel Turner. We both, as I know, cause we, we both know Joel and he's a great person and a, he's a world champion. So, I mean, yeah. he's, yeah. we're not in any way. Um, demeaning or, or taking and saying discrediting what he's saying at all and not not one bit seems like maybe I lost Chris here Uh, we've got a question here. We'll wait and see if Chris comes back. Any particular way to reproduce glunking sounds? Um, one of the best ways I've seen to produce glunking sounds is to take, I don't have a tube here with me, take a tube, turn it upside down on the fatter part of the tube, take your hand like this and, and basically pop it. I've also seen it on the smaller part of the tube. You can do it and you can play with 
uh, both sides, and I've seen different tubes make some really good glunking sounds. Uh, elk, it says, uh, elk nut doesn't talk about calf sounds very much, so everyone has their thing. True. Now, back to calf sounds, and I haven't even heard what Joel said about uh, the calf sounds, um, and we'll hopefully get Chris back here, but I, for years, used um, kind of Steve Chapel kind of calls it baby talk with my diaphragm and a real calfy kind of real um, excited kind of call and, and done really well with it. Uh, here comes Chris back. And uh, done really well with it. So, yeah, I mean, I would definitely uh, use some of those calf sounds. Um, Chris, I was just saying I have had quite a bit of success with calf type sounds in certain situations and i answered a few questions there while you were uh, going to the bathroom or whatever you're doing what happened you lose lose service yeah for some reason my phone decided to jump um wi-fi to some other tv wi-fi that's around here that doesn't connect to a phone i don't again this is this is it's it's one of those things whatever it's, you know what I, I i really like this um format though because normally like I was saying in the intro, um, you know, my podcast has always been an audio podcast. Uh, but I feel like this is kind of cool because we, we, you and I typically answer a lot of questions, but we can also be getting follow-up um, questions from the yeah. person that asked the question. So, yeah. you know, I, I like that uh, scenario. And guys, if you've got questions, um, go ahead and start uh, putting them here. Uh Got honey large drainage early season bivy in what's your play? Okay, so give me a large drainage early season. He's bivying in, which is Chris. What you used to do in your high country camp? What is your play? Okay, before how, I jump into and he says, how are you calling? Are you glassing more or calling more? All right, let me touch on one thing that I was trying to say before. So, what came out of some of the discussion and what some people have uh, misunderstood before? And that comment was, you know, well, you know, calf vocalizations don't call, they don't carry very far and they're, they're kind of quiet. No, mm. wrong. I've they're got, the they, yes, they, now when, when they're in close proximity with their mothers and with a herd, absolutely they are. And, and when they're close to their buddies, absolutely they are. But I've got, I don't know how many videos, man, do you and I both have? I've got some that I'm in the Alpine and those elk are like, 400 yards away and that's all you can hear is the calves so no no and that's honestly how i use them i don't oftentimes use quiet calf calls i'm using calf calls to be the loud mouth calf on the landscape panicked trying to find someone so no i'm cranking them there's a reason why i had jason phelps build me a custom mouth diaphragm that allowed me to just absolutely hammer the calf vocalizations. But anyway, I move on. So speaking of that, have you seen his new um, external? Um, It's pretty good. It's, it's pretty good. I don't have one in front of me, but um, uh, I, you know, I think you're able to mix that in with the diaphragm as well. And you could get, you could get several calves, you know, kind of, stirred up and and definitely get um you know some elk to come to you all that 
So, yes, I did. I, I got one. It sounds awesome. It absolutely sounds awesome. I do like the fact that he used, he doesn't have the, the wide read that Steve does or that Primos does, you know, and I kind of like a wider read, but this is not a skinny read, which I appreciate. Uh, but you can see that hole on the up tiny. And so it does restrict. restrict. Yeah. So you can't, I, I can't blow. The, you have to use light, light pressure. You have to use light lip pressure. And it's it. This one is by design a close range finisher call. It is not designed to get out there and just launch. So if people are thinking that, that's that's not what this is for. But no, it's a it's a great little little call. So um, let's get back. Let's let's get to yeah. the, the question he asked. Uh, back to um, JD Glasser, uh, Kong Valley. He's asking suggestions on both three and four person setup. Uh, one caller we kind of already go back and listen but yep. anything that i said in that three to four person um scenario with one caller first of all walking in the woods with five guys i wouldn't recommend it um maybe if if you know you're the only one that can call put the other two guys maybe on stand on a wallow uh and it's you know two guys out in front with bows is, is good but walking with five of you you know five uh, different, you know, human scent. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, have the other two guys up glassing and scouting. Take the other two guys, try and get shots. Chris, anything you can add that? Exactly. If you've got that many guys in your hunting party, split up, man. What You know, a couple of you go over on this side of the drainage. A couple of you go on that side of the drainage. It's just spread yourselves out just to figure out where the elk are. And hey, great! Maybe both groups get into elk, and you're like, "Hell yeah, here we go!" And you get some elk on the ground, awesome. But at the very least, especially early in your hunt, when you're still trying to find those animals, spread out, man. Don't just put, you know. Yeah, I agree. Spread that out. Now, if you're gonna all go together, I know it's popular. You can see it on YouTube. How many series you see where all the guys are going together on YouTube? Now, granted. And some of them, they're still spreading out. They're still splitting up, and you know, a couple of them are going over here, and a couple of them are going over there. If you're going to do that, then yeah, try to maximize your ability um, to the best you can. But no, it, it can be difficult. Some yeah, people are all the time. Oh, elk make a lot of sound. Well, they can, but I've also just watched them go, just vanish into nothingness you, so, you're better off with one caller and one shooter that's best if you have two shooters and one caller then fine but any more than that um is challenging and you know as much as we've tried to film hunts and stuff when you add the the caller the cameraman and the hunter three guys that's a lot so um just a rule of thumb if you can keep it to two a caller and a hunter that's best three but don't go over three uh we've got here uh, Jay, I noticed the kind of dimpling on my diaphragm after a few days of calling. Is there something to look for on diaphragms to tell you if they're damaged and no longer good? I'm not going to look at it at all. I'm going to go off sound. So, you know, if, if it's sounding good, um, I'm going to keep rolling it. But I always have six or seven or eight or ten twos, threes, and fours in backup i never just have one call i always am breaking in new calls and as, as soon as my number one i just throw it away go to the number two three always have eight or ten
calls uh, working at any given time. I mean, if you look in what I carry around, I mean, I can blow my one call as good as my 10 call, but I might have gone through 30 or 40 calls to find those, you know, top 10. Super important because you don't want to blow out a read and then, you know, be down and not have confidence. Always have your number two, three, four, fives, like have it, have them ready to roll because, you know, I hear people saying they use a diaphragm for like a full season. I mean, I use a diaphragm maybe for a week. You know, I'll hunt 30 days in a row and I get a week and done. I'm out. That one goes. I go to the next one. Um, and I don't know if it's my style or the way I'm blown or what, but, um, you know, if, if you get cracking, then sometimes when those diaphragms and that latex starts kind of cracking and you can kind of see little cracks to me, sometimes those when the, it sounds absolute best, but you're also at a fine line there when you go from cracks to holes and then you're done. So, you know, Breaking a call in and getting it, you know, really good, there's a fine line where it could switch on you. So make sure you have those backups. Yeah, Jay, you did a phenomenal podcast a couple of years ago with, uh, with um, Jason Phelps about mouth diaphragms and, and about how they change over time and how you can modify them. You know, you're putting them in soda and that type of stuff. I th- It's not a bad idea for you, right? Maybe you were already going to, but you might want to go back and find that episode and re-release it again because that was phenomenal. I, I keep, and, and I don't throw away my diaphragms after each season simply because of that, because I've found, well, last year, I've found that sometimes my one and two year old mouth diaphragms all of a sudden just magically turn on. I'm like, where were you when and, I needed them? And that's the thing I was going to say too. It's one thing to blow a diaphragm out. I'll throw that one away. Um, back in the day, like Chris, you were with Primos. Um, Mr. Will used to send me boxes of like literally a box of a hundred of, of each of the different calls and was asking for feedback and, you know, just running through them. And even the ones that I didn't like, I would put in a separate bag and I would label them, you know, not ready yet. Um, and I would soak those in, you know, Coke and Sprite and Dr. Pepper, different time frames trying to loosen that latex up and then all of a sudden maybe the next year I pull that bag of 30 or 40 out and five or six of them I mean the latex would be perfect yeah so I I don't want people thinking I'm throwing them away I'm throwing them away when they crack and they break you know the the latex breaks up then they go in the trash but I mean I got stacks um, in my box of literally hundreds of diaphragms and I I typically start going through them and I might find one that's five years old and for whatever reason it's the latex has broken down enough that I can make the sounds that I'm looking for specifically when I'm looking for the cow sounds and the tone that I'm looking for sometimes those older diaphragms um just are the ticket yeah they're awesome yep uh scent control is so important Yet some of us require sunscreen, which I I do, uh, bug repellents for mosquitoes. Do you have any recommendations on unscented products to help with sun and bug protection? I I want to add one or answer one thing of this real fast is sun protection is something that I think I'm 
fair skin, so I have to wear unscented sunscreen, um, and I try and do it as much as I possibly can. My wife would say I don't do it near enough. The other thing about bug spray, here's an interesting thing. I'm curious if anybody else has heard the same thing, but years and years ago, this is like 20 years ago, I had guys in eastern Arizona that they, not even when there was, when there were no bugs, they would get um, cutter mosquito bug spray. They'd be spraying down with it, spraying their whole body. And they swore. Now, I would walk up to them and it's just like, oh, it smells like mosquito spray. They were wearing specifically cutter bug spray. They swore that by, by spraying that down, that they would have elk close to them in lots of situations and the elk wouldn't smell them. Well, I thought that's a bunch of bull. I start, I started doing it, had the same response. The only thing that I could think is that the elk smelled that, but didn't associate that smell. What we smell is unnatural mosquito spray. It smells like chemical. For whatever reason, and I have no idea why cutter makes a difference, but, I mean, those guys t to this day still swear by it, and they spray down every time with cutter bug spray, and they say that the elk don't associate that smell with human. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that, just on the face value? You know, well, and it would be very interesting to see where this was happening, too, because I could absolutely see a scenario. So I, real quick, bighorn sheep, I, I drew two different sheep tags in Colorado in, in the unit, a, a ram tag and a U tag. And this particular unit sees a lot of recreational hikers. And my when I first went in to get my ram, I acted like a hunter and it was difficult. And I, I mean, I finally pulled it off. I got I got a nice ram the next year. I heard someone say, no, 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 don't, don't act like a hunter. Go in there and just walk around, wear city clothes with your bow and just act like a, a hiker. And that's what I did. Literally, you just walk within like 30 yards of the stinking sheep. So I got my you. So there's a point to what you're saying, or maybe if there's a high level of human activity in the area and they're hikers that have zero impact on elk. Be I mean, hikers don't bother elk. You know what I mean? Hikers are predictable. Hikers are you know, innocent bystanders that, that are no threat. And so maybe in some of these areas, they smell that and they're like, oh, it's just another hiker. Never mind, moving on. And they ignore it. However, there is in the whitetail industry, there's what there's a company that, that sells what they call nose jammer. And it's supposedly this, this, you know, scent that blocks their, no, it's just vanilla scent. It smells like vanilla. And it's supposed to do the exact same thing. It, it, it's supposed to cover or, overwhelm the uh senses of a whitetail to where he doesn't associate that smell with a hunter i had one of my hunters i didn't he didn't tell me he was doing it but one of my hunters was wearing it i'm walking i'm like I'm like did he use his wife's shampoo what did what did you smell lovely what is that <laughs> it's it like what and he's sitting there going I, i'm not wearing it. i'm like are you wearing cologne he's like no i'm not wearing anything I, I, I'm, I'm all set free. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> like, I can smell you from here. I'm like, it took us forever to figure out what it was. It's like, well, well, I sprayed the stuff down with nose jammer. I'm like, give me that thing. <laughs> I'm like, that's what it is. It's thinking vanilla. So 
I don't know, man. I mean, the, the, how what, you know darn well if the elk are going to smell you, they're going to blow out. So I guess if, if you have no choice, give it a try. I don't know. I would tell you, I used it for a few years and actually thought it it works pretty good. I actually have elk that I'm like, that elk should be running away, and it's He's not. not. So, I, you know, I'm just hey. telling you, they swore by it. I've used it a little bit. But back to the scent stuff, like, guys, it really doesn't matter. When they're downwind, they're going to smell you. So there's, you know, maybe a period where they won't smell you as much. But, I mean, here's, here's the thing. If, if you're going to hunt out of a camper or out of a base camp where you can have, because I will, I'll, I'll carry several uh, quart jars or jugs of uh, either, I love Primo Silver XP or um, Dead Downwind. Both of those seem to do extremely well. I really do love the, well, it's not Silver XP anymore. It's like, what do they call it? The Control Freak or whatever it is. It works really, really well. And most of the time I use it just to knock my own stink down so I don't have to smell myself if I can't keep up with with laundry or showers. But if you have the ability to do that, that's fine. But if you're going to go hunt in the backcountry and you're going to hike all the way in, you're not going to control your scent. It's it's not going to happen. So just play the wind the best you can. Uh, we've got uh, CC Pizza Bro back to he wants hunting a large drainage early season. Vivian, what's your play? How are you calling? Are you glassing more or less? What what are you doing, Chris? Yeah, it depends on the terrain. If if you've got a if you're way the heck back in there and you've got a lot of alpine and open meadows and, and opening areas where you can get you know, climb to an elevated spot and, and use the glass, you know, your binoculars or spotty scope to figure out where the animals are, figure out where they're coming and going, you know, how where are they feeding? Are they feeding there each night, each morning? Where are they going into the timber at to bed? When are they going in there? If you can use your eyes to pattern a group of animals and see a consistent, you know, kind of cycle in an area of operation, spend a couple days you doing that. I mean, Jay, you love sitting behind glass. I hate it. I I, it, I despise it, but I still will do it if, I, if, if I'm in those alpine areas because it's an advantage. If you can figure out what their daily cycle is and no one's in there bothering them, spend a couple days, watch them, figure out what they're doing. Because then you'll know I need to be right there where that little finger of trees comes out, and then you got, and then there's that deadfall right there. I mean, it seems like every time they come out, they're going thirty yards right by that deadfall. Well, that'd be good information to have, wouldn't it? Or you know for darn well that they don't come out of the timber or out of the in the morning. They don't leave the alpine until nine o'clock. Why is that? Because they're waiting until the thermal shift. And then they're putting the wind in their face. Then they're dropping into the timber. Well, it's good to know that because you try to insert yourself in there too early, and this, and the, all of a sudden your scent switches and goes right up to their face. Well, you're busted. So yeah, no, use glass to your advantage. But if it's all just thick timber, I'm getting up crackle in the morning. Like I, I don't treat a backcountry hunt any different than I do a camper hunt in arizona i jay you and i've talked about it before i'm gonna be out there 3 30 4 o'clock in the morning i'm gonna get myself in a spot where i should be able to hear a, a long distance i'm gonna sit there i'm gonna listen try to figure out where everybody is i might throw out a call or two just to see if i get a listener's response and then in the dark i'm gonna try to cut the distance and move in i'm 
I'm not going to change my tactics in one at all. My tactics are based on behavior and how to exploit that behavior. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Question here, uh, six with sticks. Uh, With the popularity of OTC units, if a guy wants to move to a limited quota area, when's the best time to look at it if you're hunting OTC? I want to change areas, but figuring out which limited quota area to go to. Um, I think you almost have to sacrifice a season and do the research ahead of time, maybe pick a couple of different units and maybe just hunt your OTC for two or three days. But I think if you're going to make the move, at some point you have to go ahead and jump and go, maybe go pre-scout, go take some hikes, go camp overnight, go listen for some bulls, go try and monitor you know, people at trailheads and, and what's going on. I think you know, unless you have a buddy that can do it for you while you're hunting, the only way for you to truly really know is if you go and look at it yourself. So I think you're going to have to sacrifice and guys, um, feel free. Keep asking questions here, Chris. Uh, I think you're okay to go. Let me know if you've got a time timeline here. But uh, yeah, no. um, I, I know we've got some more questions uh, that I got on uh, Instagram. And if you had any questions, uh, dive in there, Chris. Yeah, I've, I've I've got a list of them here too that I can touch on. But no, I, I you know what you made a, a good point because what I was going to say is. The time to do that is in the off season. I mean, you've got plenty. There's so many resources, online resources out there now that you can get in and, and pick apart information. But you bring up a very good point. Um, it's not a bad idea to say, okay, fine, I'm going to take this weekend and, you know, I'm going to look at unit XYZ. Uh, you know, it, it, or maybe you've got three units that you're, you're toying around with, depending on how many preference points you have. You might just want to go out and say, okay, what does it look like? How, how, you know, where are people parking? Where are people accessing? Um, maybe take a day hike and just go be a hiker. Don't, I mean, obviously you can't bring a bow or anything like that. Just, just become a hiker and just go up on, on, on some glassing points and just listen and just kind of get a feel for what you think. I, I think that you can do a lot of work in the off season to figure out exactly which ones you want to narrow down and which ones we want to try. But I think if he's at that point where he kind of has an idea of what unit he's looking at, what you just said is not a bad idea. Go in there now, this season. And just kind of get it, just kind of get a feel for for what it looks like, and, and talk to some of the guys. I I know who this individual is. He's a very personable individual. So there's no reason in the world, you know, go in on a Sunday when a lot of people were probably going to be coming out to head home, and just talk to him. Hey, how'd it go? I I don't have a tag in here. I'm thinking about maybe someday, maybe hunting here. I'm no threat to you and your hunt right now. I'm just curious what you saw. What did you experience? What did you see? What did you hear? What you know? What's it like? It's not a bad idea. Got a great question here from Zach Shannon, 13. I keep having bulls come in frontal. I identify the doorway and try to set up in a good spot, but they always come in frontal and I don't, oh, and they don't turn broadside. Any suggestions? Before you answer that, though, tell people what the doorway is. All right. That's, it's just basically what I've, you'll hear people talk all the time about the, you know, the elk hang up at 80 yards or, you know, 60 yards or 80 yards or 100 yards. Where they, they, always, they would always come to my calling, but they would hang up. It's not that they're hanging up. What I kind of coined as the doorway or the doorway principle is if you think about how you walk through your house, you know, you have open rooms, you have hallways, and then from that hallway or from one room to another, you have a doorway. And if someone calls to you from the other side, from from a different room, and you go to meet them, it's not uncommon for us to even pause in the doorway of that room 
instantly, I mean, in milliseconds, look, try to make eye contact, assess, and then move forward. Elk are no different. They're going to move across. They know you're you're there. You are in their kitchen, their feeding area. You are in their bedroom, their bedding area. You're walking their hallways, those trails that are going back and forth. Okay, so you're in their house. They know their house. They've been there before. Trust me. And so, as they're moving across the landscape, there are going to be places where they should be able. To, I get to this bench, or I get to this patch of timber where it kind of opens up a little bit, or these transition areas where they should be able to step in. And I should be able to see where it, where that animal I hear talking. Those are the doorways. Where is that transition between cover, terrain? Where's the first place an elk from over there that's coming my way should be able to lay eyes on where I'm at? Because that's what they want to do. That's, that's the doorway. Stop. Yeah, that's what that's where they're going to stop. That it doesn't matter where you are. That's where they're going to stop. Period. Whether you're a hundred yards from it. Or 10 yards from it. They're going to stop there. But guess what? It's up to you to put yourself in range of that spot. It's your. It's, it, they didn't do anything wrong. They didn't hang up. You chose the bad setup. You, you chose the wrong spot on the map to, to set up. So okay, it, they're, it, coming in, they're coming in front on. What can you do different? Yeah, and that, so, Zach, I, I had yours written down here, too, so I'm glad you chimed in and asked it again. It, it, bottom line, I, I've said this before. My calling philosophy, I'm, what do I say? Call them to your toes. They're they're right here, right there. I can hear them swallowing. Okay, so yeah, you're going to have a lot of frontals and and hard quartering two shots. So in my opinion, you've got two options. Number one, get your bow set up, your arrow and broadhead set up, designed to take advantage of that. A frontal shot, properly executed, in. You know, I don't like it any. I don't like taking a frontal shot beyond twenty yards, just because the the animal can react. But you've watched my videos where I've killed elk and they're frontal or hard quartering, and I have my broadhead, iron wheel broadheads with a medium to heavy arrow. That arrow's going stem to stern, going right through them, and it can be an absolute deadly, deadly shot opportunity. If you don't want to do that, the other option is to go ahead and let that animal spook. Or let that animal come in, and if he's going to stop broadside or whatever, go ahead and let him see you at the last little second. Just go ahead and draw. Yes, he's going to spook. He's going to turn, and he's going to wheel. A lot of times, though, a lot of times those bulls will go, they'll spin, they'll trot off a couple steps and stop, and they'll look back. That's where you can get a quartering away shot, okay? There's pluses and minuses with both of those. Um, will he spin, and, and will he take off and just leave the county? Well, he might. Will he blow up and spin and turn and turn broadside? He might. Or does he just go out there and turn and he's like a hard, hard quartering away where you've got to get that arrow just right. Otherwise, you're you know hitting guts and everything else. So it, it, is, it is tricky. Now, if you can, and I don't know what you're doing when that moment of uh, when that moment occurs, when they come in, because if you just stand dead stone still. You don't make a state, make a don't make a sound. A lot of times, those bulls are going to come in and they're going to look and they're going to stand there. They're going to stand there. They're going to stand there. They're going to look. They're going to stand there. And if you go back to the elk module and what I talk about in some of this stuff, when they break their focus and break their concentration, there's there's an opportunity to call or just stand there and let them continue to seek. Because sometimes they'll stand, stand, and they're like, "Well, I know darn well I just heard some." 
let me take a couple more steps. And you've, if you are a subscriber, you've watched those videos where the bull comes in, he stops right in the doorway. I don't move. I don't say a word. And the bull just keeps right on going. And he walks right by me broadside at 10 steps. At that point, as he slips by me, oftentimes, and if you are if you have your bow set to where you can just slowly and smoothly draw your bow, a lot of times as he's moving and he's moving his antlers through the trees or whatever, put the bow right at him and you just draw your bow just nice and, and straight, they don't even perceive that move, movement. And if they do, they just stop and they look and it's done. Ten yards, done. Yeah, and uh, another thing too that I've done is if they're approaching but they're not to the doorway yet and I'm not going to make them stop, my last call will be further, I would say, away from them, from the doorway. So the last time they heard me, I'm further away so that hopefully they'll come to the doorway, make a quick stop, and continue because they think it's 40 or 50 yards on past and then let them continue on. And a lot of times, one of the biggest problems is when they're standing there and they're looking and they're looking, is guys can't hold still enough. If you can literally just sit there and do not move, they want it so bad most of the time, they're going to look, 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 left, right, left, right, look, maybe bugle, you know, looking for you, don't make a peep, they're going to then continue on, you're at full draw and you let it go. And, um, and, and this guy, uh, EH, gets uh, loop from the last call location as the bull is closing. Very similar to what you're talking about. You know, the, the issue is, is depending on the terrain and depending on the vegetation, if it's thick enough for you to be visually blocked, that can be good. But don't discount the fact that if you make a move and you snap a twig, you are now the next location. Because right, that heard he's listening for that. He hears something, and then the last place he hears that, now you've changed that oh, doorway. She must she must be over there then. Okay, exactly. So, yes, moving can work. I just would rather trust my setup and trust myself and just, no, let him come and stand right there in front of me. Well, heck, I've got that video uh, on the, the uh, uh, strategies and action section uh, called 108, that bull that had the ear tag down in Arizona. He comes in. He's like seven steps in front of me, standing. I'm in the middle of nowhere with just a camera in front of me. He walks up, wah, screams in my face, looks, uh, and just turns and just trot, trot, and then he's turned, and now he's broadside, and there he goes. There's so many examples on the elk module and that strategies and action section of this issue right here. But if you watch things unfold, you will see the elk will oftentimes present themselves. Most of the time, we are so happy and anxious that we finally got a bull to come in that we feel as though we have to kill him at the right then. Yeah, like the, the millisecond he stops, ah, I gotta kill him. No, 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 hold on a minute. He just walked 150, 200, 300 yards away through all that timber. He's coming to find you. He thinks nothing's wrong. Just let the situation play out. Calm, let it play out, and see what happens. Uh, Zach says, every time I stayed very still and quiet, but they stayed laser focused but then whirl and get out of Dodge. I guess I just need more call-ins and practice. Thank you guys for taking the time. I might say that maybe there's a chance you've called too much 
and you've given him too precise of a location so he knows exactly where you should be, I kind of like the elk to not know exactly where I'm at. I like an elk that's coming and wanting to know where I'm at. A lot of times they're grunting and kind of making small little sounds and they're trying to get me to respond, but I won't let them keep coming. If they're coming to the doorway and whirling, you've either, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, or your opinion, but you've either picked the wrong place to set up where they see you, you've either picked a place where the wind is not is blowing into the doorway instead of the doorway, you know, blowing the right way um, or you've called too much and they have a precise exact location where they think you are that's a problem yep all the above all the above and so to his point yes there's no two ways about it repeated experience on call-ins is going to help and so don't get frustrated the fact is you're getting elk to come in on you I mean, you're, you're having multiple call-ins and the elk are, are coming in. Now what I want you to do is take a look at where your setup is. Because, yes, I have gotten away with some phenomenally open setups before. Um, however, I have talked about and I show that when I'm choosing, there's, there's multiple places on the landscape where if I called from this place, the doorway's here. But if I went over here and I called from this place, well, the doorway's there. So I can actually choose, the elk's over here, and he's coming this way. I want him to come this way. I've got a 50-50 choice. Can I set up against that really gnarly, broken up, mass, just weird, you know, blow down and contrasty thing that completely helps break up my outline? Or do I go over and set up against that young pine that's this big, dark, green thing, and here I am with my tan camouflage, like, bam, right in front. Okay, it, it's, because camouflage, and this is a different one, I'm, I won't dive into it, but your reflective signature of your clothing also goes a long way. So if you have light-colored clothing, it doesn't matter if it's good camouflage or not. If I'm wearing ASAT and I'm standing against a dark-colored tree, it doesn't matter that my, my outline is broken up. I stand out like I, I, I'm like a neon sign in front of that, that dark-colored tree. However, if I'd just gone over here and I stood in front of that ponderosa pine in the trunk of that tree or the trunk of that tree, or this big, nasty, dead blowdown, suddenly now the colors are similar and my outline's broken up. You can have two complete, wildly different perceptions by that animal as he comes into that setup. Chris, I want to point out here, and guys, uh, feel free, keep putting your questions there. Uh, you have a chance to win a New Mexico elk hunt. If you didn't draw a hunt this year, don't worry. There's still ways to get a tag and get out in the field. Not only are there leftover and OTC opportunities, but if you join the Go Hunt Insider with my promo code, JSCOTT, by August 31st, uh, 2021, you're going to be entered in to win $1,500 worth of Kuyu gear. You're also going to get 10 entries into Go Hunt's Big Summer of Elk giveaway, where you could win a 2022 New Mexico elk hunt. They're also giving away $15,000 in gear. Uh, as you know, the Go Hunt Insider is one the one platform for finding great hunts, researching units, e-scouting, planning your hunt, and now the incredible value of the desktop and the online maps, uh, both for iPhone and Android, uh, at no extra cost. So now 
they are not charging more to become an insider member. Uh, you guys have been getting a $50 Go Hunt Gear Shop gift card just for signing up. So it's $99. Now they're adding maps to that. Uh, so at no extra charge. And uh, sign up at GoHunt.com. Use the promo code JSCOTT and get a $50 Go Hunt Gear Shop gift card. Also, don't forget when you uh, call into uh, whether you talk to Cody Nelson or you order from the gear shop, if you use the J. Scott promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount uh, on the products there. So, um, Chris, we've got a question here. Will a decoy help with drawing a bull past the doorway? Uh, it can. Uh, it depends on the decoy that you're using. However, I will say now I'm, I'm going to give a caveat to this, and this is an honest one. Your calling strategies and how you call can play a part in whether or not a decoy is going to help you. So if on the way I particularly call, my philosophy and in, in my strategies, I have had numerous uh, subscribers give me feedback when they've used decoys. And they have all come back with the exact same thing that I think. Ditch the decoy, work the setup. If you can get a good setup, if you have your setup right and you are calling the way I, I usually call, 99.9% of the time you do not need a decoy. And quite honestly, you're better off not having a decoy because then they do see it. And depending on the decoy that you're having, and especially some of these over-the-counter units, if they're pressured, a lot of times they'll come in, they'll see it, and then they're like, oh, there she is. Wait a minute, why is she moving? And it's just this static, this this completely fixed item on the landscape that isn't isn't behaving naturally. Now, and so if you're doing a solo setup, it can be difficult with a decoy. Now, heads up decoy, I like because it is just the head and the, the top part of the neck of a, a cow elk. So you can make that move. You can it can be movable and it can be dynamic. That helps. Um Heck, a buddy of mine has the ultimate predator decoys where it's the front on of a cow elk and, and you can shoot through it. Uh, that's a, It's a great-looking decoy. It works very, very well, especially if you're mobile and you're moving. I have. I have tested it out before he bought the company. I tested it out extensively. And what I found was a lot of the mature bulls, if they saw that out there at 60, 50, 60, 70 yards, they, they just pause and they stop because it's the cow the cow was just calling he just made up 80 percent of the distance okay now what do you want to do and so he's waiting for her to make a move he's waiting to see what she wants to do and so he just stands there and the longer she doesn't do anything the longer he's like mm, this ain't right i'm out and they just go so if you if you are a mobile type hunter and you want to Maybe you don't want to call as much maybe you just want to you've got bulls that are bugling and you just want to slip in and try to sniper one that ultimate predator decoy is a great one because you can put that on your bow and you can stalk and move. And that mobile aspect of that particular decoy, I think, makes it exceptionally deadly. But if you're going to be a solo hunter and you just want a static one, maybe look at that Montana decoys. They make that elk rump. It's just it's just the butt decoy, the elk butt. If you can, set it off maybe 20, 30, 40 yards behind you and upwind of you. So it, but 
don't buy and make sure that it's you, you still don't want that elk to be able to see that decoy from 100 yards away. You still want that elk to be able to see the decoy once it hits the doorway because you want that decoy hopefully to help pull it past you. Well, put it upwind so if the elk does go that way, then it can go upwind of you. But if the elk just stands there and, and stares at it, at least maybe his eyes are on the decoy and you can draw or make a better shot. But I'm telling you, there's so many people that have gotten a hold of me and they're like, dude, what you said and how you said and called and your setup, no, ditch the decoy because the decoy should just not have the decoy that he would have just walked right on through. So it's just like any other tool. It can help you in the right situations. It can be a detriment in the others. I like being highly mobile and just being flexible. So most of the time, I'm just working the setup. I'll take a few more questions here, guys. Um, when calling Roosevelt bulls, do you think calling sequences differ at all? I have no experience. I've never even seen a Roosevelt elk, so I can't really answer that. But I, I would think the scenarios are very similar other than the country is – the timber's a lot more dense, so you're probably going to hear a bull bugle and you're going to think that they're further away than they are, right? Because the, the sound's going to be muffled by the trees. Um, they're actually going to be closer. Um, but, Chris, any experience with Roosevelt elk? My old, un, yes, but unfortunately mine were late season. So it was, it was, a, it was a, I don't know if Washington still has it, but when I was in the military there, um, the only time I could hunt was, I think it was a December season on the Olympic Peninsula. So it, it was just a complete spot and stock hunt. But no, elk are elk. I mean, the, the behaviors and the vocalization are extremely similar across every species. The issue is how they interact with their habitat and the, the, the hunter slash predator pressure that they experience on a daily basis. So how they interact with their habitat and then where they find those sanctuary areas. But the vocalization is the same. The setups are the same. My strategies are exactly the same. Uh, we've got how to call a bedded solo bull through open sagebrush country. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, now, when you say open sagebrush country, please tell me that there's a least spotty See, you know, pinion juniper out there because if it's if it's open sagebrush country man i mean all the elk has to do is just stand up and look and be like i'm not seeing anybody now i guess th at that point maybe this is where if you have a couple guys you know say say you've got one shooter and you've got a couple buddies with you then maybe take a couple buddies that have the you know the full-on full body style you know montana decoys and you know, you go 200 yards out in the back and they, they just they just stand there looking like a couple elk sitting on the landscape. And then, you know, you're you're closer and have them call and maybe he stands up and, and comes across. But no, open open sagebrush like that, man, dude, that's going to be tricky, man. It, I think you're going to have to use terrain. You're going to maybe quite honestly, sometimes it's just going to be one if it's if it's deep, tall sagebrush that can hide you man, maybe spot and stock is the way to go. If you're Dar Colburn, you don't even have to duck. You just sneak up there on them and shoot them in their bed in the sagebrush. There you go. There you go. Um, just got a text from the Latvian Eagle, Giannis Vitalis, oh, saying he, he can't hear me. Curious if you guys this whole hour and a half have not been able to hear me. Um, and Giannis, we need your production quality here. Chris and I are kind of winging this. This is our first Instagram Live. 
I can um, hear you just fine. But uh, good to have you, Giannis. I'm glad you're listening. Um, and I uh, look forward to uh, seeing you one of these days. Um, a little unknown fact about Giannis. Um, he actually used to guide with uh, Dara and I uh, down in Arizona. And um, we had a lot, of, a lot of fun with him. So uh, good to see that he's tuning in. Uh, what class of bull can I expect to shoot in 6A in Arizona? I assume he's talking about the archery hunt. One of the things about 6A is I want to say there's like 700 bull tags and 900 cow tags, give or take. I think there's like 1,500 people in the unit. It does have probably more elk uh, than any unit in the state, uh, but tons of people. So that's never been a unit that I've focused on, uh, but as far as class of bull, I think this year the antler growth will be average. I think you can expect a lot of elk, you know, young five points and six points, you know, 260, 270 up to, you know, probably 330. And I think there will be a few 340, 350, maybe a little bit better bulls around. But um, if that unit did not get the amount of pressure that it did, it would hold really big elk. It just gets hunted so much. And it's a pretty darn good late hunt, so those elk don't get a chance to grow up. Uh, Chris here, what is what are Chris's archery plans for Colorado this year? <laughs> try to figure out what I want to do for this year. That, that's my archery plan right now. Try to figure it out. Um, yeah, I've got a couple. Uh, so I've obviously I did not draw. Well, I guess not obviously. I did not draw a limited tag um, this year. Um, so. And I haven't I haven't shared this with a lot of people. Jay and I have talked about it. So I'm, I'm still trying to figure out some lung issues. I don't know if it's long COVID that I'm dealing with. Um, largely, it's been like, or or maybe I just developed asthma as I became an adult. I don't know. We're trying to figure it out right now. But it seems like I got about 50% lung function these days. And so hiking in some remote stuff might not be in my, my near future. I don't know. Uh, but I've got several over-the-counter units that I can go to. I could go back to my old stomping grounds. I haven't been there in a couple years now since, you know, last year I didn't hunt elk for myself at all. Um, so I, I've got that. But then I've got other two other uh, over-the-counter units that I've been looking at that, to go hunting with buddies that I have not gone stomping in, in these areas uh, in a while. And I'm very curious about going and doing that. And then um, kind of eyeballing some other options as well. But right now, dude, I'm serious. It's August 1st, and I am, like, as prepared as, like, this much. So <laughs> we'll see. We will see. It says, Chris, I'm bow hunting Southern Colorado Unit 77 the last week of September. Be aggressive or sit water? I have no idea. And I hate to say that. I don't. I don't know. Um, I don't know what. I don't know how many elk you're going to have in your area. I don't know what the age class of those elk are going to be. I don't know what whether you've got bulls with cows and then satellites, or you just every bull, has, you know, it's like one bull and four cows, one bull, three cows, and everybody's locked down. I don't know what the hunter pressure is going to look like. Um, give it now with the water set, and and this is parallel to a, a, a part of a question uh, from Sterling earlier about you know being this wet, you know, sitting wallows, or is it better to you know, hunt feeding areas, you know, like we said in the beginning, um, with this much moisture on the landscape, if your area is wet, wallow sits may be less product productive than it would be in a dry year. 
and maybe you focus more on those feeding areas in the early, you know, in, in the mornings and the evenings and, and such. Um, I, I don't know, man. I, I don't know what you're going to be dealing with. And I think you, if you come to, you know, again, my philosophy is, you know, I talk about all the time, the Valley of the Ten Bulls. I, I walk into a valley and there's 10 different groups of elk with 10 different bulls. I want to have the tool sets and the skill sets to be able to work every single bull in that valley, however that bull needs to be worked. You know, I, I so if you develop your skill sets now and, and you understand your calling and what you're saying and why, you will be flexible and you will be you will be better able to be dynamic on that landscape as the conditions unfold in front of you. So it's about the best I can do. I apologize. Got a question here. I might add one thing to that. If you're if you're finding wallows, let that dictate. If you're finding smoking hot wallows and you can tell they're pounding them, change your tactics. If yeah. you get there and they're just you're coming across different wallows and they haven't touched it, then you've got to, you've got to switch. But I mean, over at the ranch, I mean, when Hunter and I notice we get two or three days of really warm weather and we start we we hammer our cameras on the wallows to try and capture as much content as we can. Um, and I, guys, I encourage you to check out the Odd Six Ranch Instagram page. We're, we're going to have an unbelievable content season this year uh, with the cameras we have um, at Odd Six. I'll also have it on the J. Scott Instagram. But, you know, when they get to wallowing, it's they're on them like, I mean, they are on them. Um, Real quick, before you yeah. get off that, though, and, and this goes back to fresh sign, and, and I had answered that question earlier on my page. Um, people were asking about fresh sign. With wallows, and, and what Jay just said is, is key, but the, the question is, is, if it's is it fresh? Just because it seems milky, the water in the wallow seems milky, does not necessarily mean it's, it's overly fresh. So what, what you need to do every time you walk up to a wallow, what I do, I'll take a stick and I'll stir the mud up a little bit. Does that thing just silt up and just and just completely silt up and the silt just hang there for like a long period of time? Or does it stir up mud and then just settle right back to clear water? Because if you touch it and it stir it up and it just instantly turns to chocolate milk and it just hangs there, man, an elk could have been there two days ago versus you stir it up and it just immediately settles out. Okay, well, you know that it settles out pretty quick. Well, then all of a sudden you walk over to this wallow and not only is there wet mud on the on the vegetation, it's still stirred up. Okay, that's being used. That's fresh. That's being churned over, churned over, churned over a lot. Now, hopefully you're finding elk tracks in it, not just muddy water because bears love to go wallow around in, in those wallows as well. But just use that. You know, go stir it up. And just evaluate how long does it take for that water to settle out because that will give you a better indication in the area how how recent was an animal in this water. Guys, um, AZ Gunner 2020 says, Jay, love the format. Been doing chores and rocking this on my JBL speaker throughout the house. Hope you do it more often. I would like to hear from you guys if you like this format or if you like my standard um, audio podcast. I felt like, you know, on six years, almost 800 episodes uh, going on Mark McMahon's real estate podcast last week, we did an Instagram live and I thought, well, why don't I do it with this? Yeah. Um, if you guys really like this format, um, let me know if, if you like it, if you don't like it, um, that goes with anything that I'm doing specifically. I love to hear from you guys. So, uh, feel free to reach out. 
we've got a question here. What situation dictates uh, you guys to challenge a bull? I'd like to kind of address that first, Chris. Um, <laughs> let me stand. Okay, I'm up on my soapbox. Um, okay, so for the... Challenge uh, bugle doesn't exist. Okay, <laughs> Sorry. so... I'm going to say for the Arizona and New Mexico guys that are listening. I got to watch what I say here. (laughs) Um, I believe that there are some calling strategies that work very well on young bulls that are curious when you bugle at them and they want to come. And I agree that there are calling strategies on big, giant, mature bulls that will come and knock your head off. But my experience 20 years guiding on public land in Arizona is that when you come to Arizona with the idea that you're going to come blow their hat off and you're going to come look for the one bull in the unit that wants to play and wants to bugle and have a challenge back and forth, you are going to get your butt handed to you as far as calling elk in. Consistently. Consistently. You might find the one bull or the two bulls that wants to come and fight and do the whole thing. But, And I will argue with anybody in the world about this. When you come to Arizona, you are dealing with elk that have a higher age class than a lot of different states. You come and your bugle does not sound perfect. And you don't blow it at the right time and it doesn't sound good. You are going to do yourself more harm than good. And if people want to have a whole podcast where we can argue about that, that's fine. But I'm telling you, 20... So I've taken some criticism. I'm going ahead and just air it all out here right now. I have taken some personal messages and some criticism that I don't know what I'm talking about because I guided in 20 years in Arizona and I hunt, I've hunted reservations and I watch elk every day on a private ranch. One thing I will tell you is maybe all that's true, okay? But my at-bats and the amount of exchanges and the amount of elk that I've seen, heard, called, watched, witnessed, my at-bats is probably higher than anybody in the country. So when Chris talks about behaviors, when he talks about some of this stuff, I've seen a lot of this stuff for 20 years in Arizona and then at the ranch, I watch elk for 45 days straight, morning and night. So when I tell you, and and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody specifically, but coming to Arizona and thinking you're going to be blowing challenge bugles and that's your strategy, I promise you a better strategy across the board is going to be coming in sweet talking, cow calling, starting with that first. I'm not saying that there's not time when bugling might not work and challenging a bull doesn't work but for the most part come in sweet talk and you're going to do a lot better chris i've dug a hole for myself pull me out of it (laughs) okay so if we go to his question 
when would we do that? I will only, and I'm going to use your terminology, or this, the, the challenge, a bull. When I am literally down to my last day or two of the hunt, I have found a bull that is absolutely the last, that's, he's the only, he's the only bull that I want to kill, period. End of discussion, that bull, that's the bull I want to kill, okay? So I'm, I'm on that bull, no other option is acceptable. I am down to literally my last day or last couple sits or efforts on this bull. I have already tried everything else that I teach and talk about. I've used every behavioral interaction I can up until that point, and they've all failed. And the bull ends up getting himself in a situation where all of the factors necessary, I can get in close, I can get next to his cows, but all those, all the traditional, you, he's asking this question and guaranteed He's listened to every other person out there that loves to bugle at elk about and, and knows exactly what scenario they talk about. I'm not going to try to, and I'm not going to say challengeable. I'm not going to try to be a threat to him with bugles or uh, you know with a big honking gnarly dominant bugle, unless that's literally I've got no other play. I literally have no other play, and I'm getting ready. That bull's either going to walk out of my life forever, or or I'm just packing up and going home. With that being said, how many times have I done that? I can think of a couple of times where I've, I, 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 there's been a numerous times where I've used bull vocalizations to call it a bull, but they have not been challenge, quote unquote, bull bugles. Because again, and I joke about this, but I'm dead serious, challenge bugle doesn't exist. Um, and I can think of one time, and that was in Unit 49, Colorado, when I had a limit tag. And I was literally getting ready to go home. And I was dealing with a bunch of small bulls, small bulls, small bulls. And all of a sudden, a holy freaking, what the, that type of bull showed up. And he had a whole bunch of cows. And they were moving down the mountainside. And I had a split set. I, I literally, I was like, there is no time to play. There is no time to try to, I, I've got to get this guy to stop and at least stop and try to, to head me off. And so I tried it. He did. He stopped, and he did exactly what he normally did. He stopped, he delayed, but he stopped in a place where it wasn't going to give me a shot. He sat there, bugled, screamed, looked around, turned around, grabbed his cow, down the hill, away they go again. What Jay said there was was perfect. There are a lot of people that talk about elk calling that, and we don't even need to name names because they're all very prominent vocal social media people that yeah, give it's nothing personal correct it's correct. just a totally and a, a totally different style and i'm friends 20, with most of them. 20 years of experience in a state i think i have a a way to say it doesn't work yeah no so and so he just qualified so best matt just qualified yeah no you're right man it, it for me it's going to be a last resort because, and I've talked about this before. Now, again, let's just real quick. I'm friends with most of those other guys. I'm like personal I, friends with them. I love them. I, and, and they're very, they're good callers. But every single one of them comes out and says the exact same thing. This is the type of bull I want to play with. And so when I give my example of the Valley of the Ten Bulls, they're going into that valley and they're trying to find the one bull, maybe, that wants to play that style of game. 
I'm not that philosophy. So, yes, Vestmat. So, in my opinion, for me, for me to get to that aggressive level, I'm, I'm going to do exactly, it's got to be, there. there's literally, I've thrown the entire kitchen sink at him, and I am down to the where I am either going to leave, uh, I've got to go home, or this bull is going to leave my life forever. And so I have no, there's, there's no reason why not to try it. Because if I try it too early and it doesn't work and I blow that bull off the mountain, great, now what? You know what I mean? I'd rather have, multi, like Jay, perfect at-bats. I would like to try to work that bull multiple times over multiple days with multiple strategies before I go all in and just crack him across the nose with a baseball bat. I, I did see something here in the question. Someone talked about raking, and I can't agree more. For me, rather than bugling, doing a lot of raking, getting in close to a bull with cows and raking, for me, I see that working way better than if you bugle at them. And I will say that, in my opinion, there's not enough people out there that are good enough buglers to consistently use the bugle. If you bugle like Steve Chapel, then, yeah, you can probably use the bugle a lot more. Corey. Yeah, if, or Corey, if you don't sound like them, Listen, Dirk, yeah, that, then you probably shouldn't. These are guys that are very, very good at the bugle. But what I'm saying is, my ear hears a lot of other people that are not even in the same category. So they go out and expect it would be like if I told you to go out and use a certain fly, and that's a method that I've done, and it's very hard to do. And I tell you that's the way to fish and you'll catch every fish in the river. Well, if you don't mend, if you don't throw it the right way, if you, if you it won't work at all. So yeah. I like coming in sweet more than coming in hot and trying to challenge an elk. But I will say, great point that, a, that someone said there is raking. In Arizona, on bulls that are 10, 11, 12 years old, cows that are... 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, raking is an unbelievable tool. And I've seen it work, and I use it a lot. I sneak in there. I don't make a single sound. I get 60, 70 yards, and I rake, and that bull will come right to me. A lot. So, uh, finding one bull on many OTC hunts will run you ragged. Hunt 10, it says. Yeah. Uh, Great stuff, guys. I like the format. Uh, someone else said, do the video, release the audio podcast later. Uh, guys, don't worry about it. Um, this this will be released as audio on my podcast. Um, I just I like the format of uh, being able to have people have follow-ups. Um, and I've thought of a call-in show as well where people could call in. And Chris and I have actually had a few people. We've kind of done a call-in type show. Um, but love hearing, uh, all of your feedback guys. We're at the two hour point here, Chris. Um, if you have anything, any last question that you really want to answer, or if someone has something out there that's uh, super pending, uh, let, let's cover it. And, um, then we'll have to just do this again. Yeah. I was going to say we've been, yeah, I've got a couple here, but they're a little bit longer than what we probably can take, um, yeah. Well. Okay. Let's. I tell you what. Let's take this last. Co- this last uh, question, and then the ones I have, I can do a little bit later. But I probably ought to get back to work. 
Okay, sounds good. It says solo hunting. How do you manage to do both rake and be ready to shoot? If you're, it, it helps a lot if you have someone with you. But what I would do is I would sneak in close. I would have you know have your bow setting there, and I would go ahead and rake, see what kind of response. Go ahead and have your bow right there. And a lot of times they're going to come as soon as you hit the first tree and really start going. They're going to bugle. If you ignore them and don't bugle and go right back to the raking, that's what I do. They almost always on that second time when you hit that brush, they're they are coming and they're coming right. They're they're not. They are coming straight at you. Yeah, being being close is key. Number one, number two. Yeah, I agree. Have a have an arrow. You know, have something. And this is the thing. I agree with Jay. This is where having multiple people there really helps because a lot of times you can pick up a little skinny stick and, and rake like that, but and that can work. But if you pick up something that that's the size of the antlers of, of the animal that you're going and just, I mean, just go. Sometimes that takes two hands, okay? So you just got to play with it. Maybe have your bow sitting down on the ground next to you, but just be careful. You're, you're snapping branches off, and a branch comes down and lands on your equipment. It, yeah. can be tr- it can be tricky. So, But just rake, get yourself set. Listen and evaluate what that bull does. And if he shows interest, but he just kind of he's not moving yet, hit him again. Just just hit him again, hit him again, hit him again. Play, play it off the bull and his interest in what he's doing. And I've heard guys say, you know, mix in a bugle, and I think that's fine. But what's worked for me, especially in Arizona, is you rake, they bugle, you ignore them. You rake Correct. again, they bugle, you rake again. Correct. And they're like, what is that bull over there that won't bugle back at me? How dare him? And that's when they come to go, I want to know who this is in my in my territory that's raking next to my girl's and the nerve of them to do that. In my mind, when you talk about there is no such thing as a challenge bugle, when you rake and ignore that bull when he bugles at you, that's as close to a challenge as anything I know. We that's gonna be a that's gonna be a different discussion. But I do I do like it. I have a different interpretation of the behavioral I've now Oh god damn sorry. No, we're gonna have we're gonna have to we'll we'll, we'll save that discussion because this is a good discussion. It, it's a it's a good topic. But we'll I agree. start I mean, we'll I, start I with that one on the next one. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean raking can be phenomenal. Um and in my opinion, I agree with you, Jay. No, do not bugle. If if you cannot do if you just if it's just one of those things you just can't not do. You know what I mean? You're like cow Well, you could do that. But then, you, then you're a bull with a cows over there and that bull's going now that bull has cows or or maybe one of my cows okay now if you have to bugle because you just you've been trying been practicing my bugle i gotta i gotta do something then i would do what i talk about what i kind of call like a check bugle or you hear those bulls that they'll they'll want us they'll want to bugle and then they think better of it they're like ah, 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 ah. and just they, they want to bugle but they're like mm, i might get my butt whooped that in my opinion goes along with what the connotation of that raking is doing because sometimes bulls will rake because they're frustrated and they're they're nervous and they're trying to make themselves out to be bigger than they are and so that other bull hears that, and he's like, "Oh, dude, yeah, I've, who that? No, you get the freaking hell out of here." So I, I'm going to push you out now. So no, I agree with you, Jay. Put the just leave the 
just leave the bugle in your pack. And what to use to rake um, a hard stick, like a log or, you know. About the size of a baseball bat. Yep, but you want it hard, not some rotten thing that just falls apart. And quite honestly, there's some people, if you're walking around and you find a, a shed antler, like a brown shed, or it doesn't matter, a shed antler, like a four-point or five-point shed antler, sometimes that's awesome to use. But, you know, something about about the bigger round is a baseball bat and really, really hard. Uh, you bring up a point we'll have to talk about another time, but a couple of small five-point type antlers and clicking them together. Oh, yeah, there's another Me- one. Yeah. Sneak, yeah. Sneaking yeah. in close to, to yeah. bull bedded with cows and you start kind of clanking some antlers together and maybe rake just a little bit. Super deadly. Yeah. Um, Chris, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, Rowhuntingresources.com. Uh, you can also check Chris out on Instagram as well. You guys know how to follow him. Uh, talk about uh, the elk module, how they need to sign up for the elk module. Yeah. So, I mean, it is, you just go to rowhuntingresources.com. You're going to bring up the homepage, and you're going to see different stuff. You've got the the educational material, you've got guided hunts, and then you've got the consulting stuff that I do. Just click on the education stuff, and then it'll bring up. I've got the elk module, deer, blah blah blah. And quite honestly, you can. I've got two different subscription based, so it's it's all video based. There's like there's over 50 hours of, of video on there now, heavy on the elk interaction, elk vocalization, actually seeing elk doing elky things. It's putting elk in front of you. Um, the, the main point being is is there are two different subscription options. There's one that's just for three months, which for you guys right now is, is a great option. Just You'll get August, September while you're hunting, and then you still have October to go back and, and an after-action review. Review what you saw in the field and what you did, and then you can go back and use it to kind of learn from there. Or you can do the annual one. The the, the three-month one is 25 bucks, and the annual one is $50. bucks. we we have kept the prices the same, even though our you know, the more video we put on there, the more cost it is for us to host that on the internet in interwebs. But we're going to keep the prices low now, um, just because we want whether you're high school kid, college student, anybody, anybody can afford it, anybody can learn from it. So, well, I appreciate your time as always. And guys, I am going to turn this over, and it's going to be on my podcast, so the audio portion. Yeah. You can also watch it on my Instagram. It will be a uh, IGTV uh, video. So this whole thing, you'll be able to rewatch it. Um, and also, I want to thank, obviously, Kuyu, Ultralight Hunting. Go to kuyu.com. Uh, go hunt. Join the Insider. Get a $50 Go Hunt gear shop just for uh, card just for signing up. Use the J. Scott promo code. Don't forget 10% on, on all the stuff at the gear shop. Uh, you know, tripods, optics, uh, tents, whatever you want. And then phone scope, use the J Scott 21 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount. Uh, I know Chris, uh, I can say this for you. We appreciate all of you uh, tuning in. Um, Please send us your questions. We're going to do this again uh, and um, let us know uh, what you need. And we're here to help. And um, I'm always learning. Uh, Chris, doesn't have much to learn, but I know he learned a few things <laughs> now and then. Um, but it's always great talking to you. I'm going to go walk Poppy, and, uh, and cool. uh, it's raining outside, so it's uh, it's a, it's another great day. And uh, we're 30 days away here, roughly, from elk season, yeah. so it's um, an awesome time to be alive. All right, brother. Well, thanks for having me on here, and uh, yeah, let's definitely do this again, and, and we'll uh, 
we'll we'll powwow after and i'll get this over on my side too so that way everybody can have this in the into the future so cool man thanks for thanks for putting this together it was fun okay buddy all right bye. god bless everybody bye